you know, I have to say before I start is that I have come to the firm conclusion that we're never more in the center of God's will than when we're worshiping Him. Never more in the center of God's divine purposes. And I've come to the conclusion that that a part of that time of prayer and worshiping God in my whole life, I've never felt more convinced of time well spent than in worship and prayer to God. And I get, I'm getting to the point now more and more in my own Christian life that I, I just delight in prayer. And I delight in worship and thanksgiving. And I want to encourage us as a church to be just people that are constantly overflowing with praise. There are so many things to be thankful for. So many things to give God praise for. And when we do, God honors it. And then a very remarkable thing happens at that point is that God, while I'm worshiping Him and praising Him, He lifts me. Oh, the matchless name of Jesus. The only God. There is no other. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your life. And I'd encourage you as your brother and friend and pastor to give Him everything. Well, this morning we're in in, uh, Revelation chapter 13, the second half of chapter 13. And if you have uh, your notes, you can follow along if that's helpful to you. But I want to ask you to turn there and we'll read it. And then, uh, by God's grace, I'll, I'll hopefully be able to share with you some meaningful applications to our own lives. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth, and he ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived." He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, For it is man's number. His number is 666. Father, we come before you this morning and oh, our hearts are just overflowing with worship and praise for you. You alone are king. You alone are God. There is no other. All others are pretenders to your throne. All others are counterfeits and frauds. You alone are God. You alone have purchased men for God. And Lord, we worship You and we honor You. And Holy Spirit, this morning we pray that You would open our hearts and open our ears and open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of Your Word. And God, that we might be transformed, that we might worship more fully, that we might have a deeper understanding of Your nature and character and Your person, that we might be humbled before You. And God, fall on our knees and worship and honor and glorify your name. 
Thank you, God, for your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take my mouth and my heart and let them be vessels fit for your use this morning. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to consider the unholy trinity, the third person of that unholy trinity. The Bible refers to this person as the false prophet. Now last week we considered the second member who was the first beast coming up out of the sea of humanity. He's also called the Antichrist. And as I mentioned in in, uh, last week, but I want to talk about just a little bit more this morning, I want to talk about the incredible, striking parallel between the ministry and the work of this beast, the Antichrist, and the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. If you did any of the homework for last week in the application area, you might have noticed one of the questions was about what parallels can you draw between the work of the beast and the work of Jesus Christ? Well, I want to detail just seven that came out of the text from last week of Revelation 13, 1 through 10. Just ten short verses. Listen to these parallels. Christ was born as a man from among men. God could have done it any way He wanted. He could have just landed... Christ on the earth, but he didn't do it that way. He was born of man, from among men, divine and yet from among men. The beast was born as a man from the sea of humanity. Revelation 13.1 The Father gave Jesus his power, his throne, and his authority. Satan gave the beast his power, throne, and authority. Revelation 13.2 Jesus suffered death on the cross, but was miraculously resurrected. The beast suffered an apparent death and was apparently resurrected. Revelation 13.3 The world worshipped God by saying, Who is like God? And the world worshipped the beast by asking, Who is like the beast? Revelation 13.4 Jesus was given authority and ministry for approximately three and a half years. The beast was given authority and rule and reign for approximately three and a half years. Revelation 13.5 Jesus spoke only what the Father gave him to speak and the beast spoke only what Satan put in his mouth to speak and they were blasphemous words. Jesus was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation and the beast was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. Revelation 13.7 Coincidence? I don't think so. You're going to learn more today as we cover the false prophet about Satan and his strategy. It is so simple and yet it has escaped so many of us. All he wants is he wants the worship that belongs to God alone. And he is mimicking the Trinity to get it. He doesn't have any new ideas. He is only taking what belongs to God and perverting it and trying to make it his own. Satan wants to be God the Father. The beast is the equivalent of Jesus in his unholy trinity. And as we look at this false prophet today, this beast that comes from the land, we'll discover that he is acting and doing a very similar ministry to the Holy Spirit. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Is it to draw attention to himself? No. Is it to be praised and worshipped? No, although that's not inappropriate. His objective is to bring attention and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And he teaches us how we can do that more effectively every day as we follow him. In the same way, this false prophet will not attempt to draw attention to himself, but attention to the beast, that he might be worshipped and honored and glorified. Now, John begins this part of this particular part of the revelation 
of this beast in verse 11. And he says, I saw another beast coming out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. So he tells us right away that we've got another beast. This word another in the Greek means someone of like kind or of the same kind. So the first beast was going to deceive the world politically and the second beast will deceive the world spiritually. They have a different role in their, in their demonic plan but by character and by nature they're the same. They're both cruel and hostile to God and to His people. Now John tells us that his origins were different as well than the Antichrist because rather than coming out of the sea which symbolically in the scriptures often stands for humanity Instead, he comes from the land. Now, some people believe that uh, there's a connection with land and the, and the land of Israel because oftentimes when the land is spoken about in Scripture, it's often referring to Israel. Because of that, some scholars believe that this false prophet will be a Jew. Now, I think you have, there's a bit of speculation there. We just don't really know. But it's quite possible, and it makes sense if the temple is going to be set up in Jerusalem and they're going to try to encourage the entire world, the population of the world, to worship the Antichrist, it makes sense that they will need someone influential within the ranks of Israel to be able to influence them in that direction. But again, there's a certain degree of speculation on that uh, as to who this Antichrist will be. But we do know that John tells us that he has two horns like a lamb. Now, again, this is a distinguishing characteristic from the Antichrist. You remember the, the Antichrist, he had uh, a number of heads and seven, uh, ten horns and was obviously very threatening. But here we have this, the, uh, the false prophet, this second beast coming from the land as appearing to be almost lamb-like and non-threatening. I wonder who else is kind of lamb-like in the Bible. In Revelation 5, 6 and on, we're told about the Lamb of God who is before the throne of God. How does He appear? He appears as a Lamb who was slain. And He alone was able to take the scroll out of the Father's hand, a Lamb. Again, a mimicking and a counterfeiting of the work of God. Now Jesus warned us about this. He told his disciples and anyone who would listen, he said, watch out in Matthew 7.15, watch out for false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And this false prophet, all appearances aside, is going to be a ferocious animal, bent on the destruction of the people of God and bent on countering the purposes of God. And John says that he spoke like a dragon. The Bible says that out of the overflow of a man's heart, he speaks. So whatever is in a person's heart is eventually going to come out. So, you know, it's like the Bible says, if you can judge a tree by its fruit, sooner or later you're going to see whether a person is genuine or not. You know, a lot of times I just kind of wait and see with different people. And a lot of times you see, wow, they are really on fire. It's not just words, but you can see it consistently in their life and by what comes out of their mouth. But also, on the other hand, if you hang around people long enough, you kind of find out what they're really like. Sooner or later, things that come out of their mouth may not be so God-honoring. And this beast is full of blasphemies. And sooner or later, the evil that's in him is going to come out. We know from Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, that, the, that Satan, the dragon, that the first beast, the Antichrist, and the second beast, the third beast, or the second beast, the false prophet, all are filled with evil spirits. 
Because in Revelation 16, we're told that frogs, an evil spirit in the form of a frog, actually comes out of these three members of this unholy trinity out of their mouths. And so they have the same evil spirit, but their functions are different. Very much in the same way that God, three different persons, and yet their functions are different, yet they're all God. In this case, the unholy trinity, they all share the same heart, they're all satanic, but their functions are different, as we have already seen and will see again today. Now in verse 12, John tells us some of the activities of this beast. He exercised all authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So again, we see the counterfeit work of this false prophet. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's been given power and authority by Satan and by the beast, by the, by the Antichrist. And yet he himself is not exercising that authority on, for his behalf, but he's exercising it on the behalf of and for the benefit of the Antichrist. And he makes the world worship the first beast. So this false prophet is operating under the authority of the Antichrist, who is empowered by Satan. And he uses that authority and that power to draw attention to the Antichrist, that he might be praised and worshipped. And again, the text emphasizes the fatal wound that had been healed. This is mentioned three times in this one chapter, it's just, and it's going to come up again in a few minutes. It's like it goes, keeps going back. Why does he keep going back to this fatal wound that seemed to be healed? Well, the reason is, is that this, I believe, a fake, phony resurrection is going to be the basis upon which that whole trinity, the unholy trinity, will build its empire. It will be that false, phony resurrection that will be the basis upon which people will put their confidence and trust and faith in the Antichrist. What do believers put their confidence in? Do they put it in the apostles or the disciples? Do we, do we put it in you know, the love of God? Do we put it in the future hope of the resurrection of the saints? No. What did Paul say about the resurrection of Christ? If he hasn't been raised, our faith is worthless and foolishness and we're playing games. The whole of Christianity is ground and founded on the resurrection of Christ. If the resurrection hasn't happened, then our faith is futile. But if it has happened, which of course we know it did, then we've got some incredible things that are coming down the pipe. Some very exciting things. God has saved us. He has redeemed us. He's given us life. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's promised an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And it's all for you. It's kept in heaven for you. And God will ensure that you make it there as you put your trust in Him. That's why this comes up three times in this text is because it's the foundation of the Antichrist ministry and the basis upon which he gains authority, this fake, I believe, a fake resurrection of the Antichrist who will be struck in the head with, as it says in verse 14, with a sword and yet he will live. Now, in addition to this resurrection, this apparent resurrection of the Antichrist, the false prophet is going to do some incredible things. He is going to have miraculous powers. In verse 13 we're told that he performed great and miraculous signs even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view 
of men. So in the same way that Jesus' ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders, the disciples' ministry following the resurrection and commissioning of Jesus were accompanied by signs and wonders. This Antichrist and his false prophet will have the capacity to do signs and wonders and astound and astonish the world with their power. Now again, do you see the parallel? It's just whatever God has done, whatever God is doing, Satan comes in and he tries to snatch and take away the same strategy of God. Now we know in the end it will fail, but he knows that by himself he can't reveal himself as demonic and have people follow him. So he tries to reveal himself, masquerading, as the scripture says, as an angel of light, as Jesus Christ himself, and as the Holy Spirit, to draw worship unto himself. And so he performs these miracles. Now Mark tells us again the words of Jesus. He says, In the end times, false Christs and false prophets will appear. Well, that's what we're looking at here. Now, there's certainly other false Christs. We've got people, more people in the last 50 years have claimed to be Jesus Christ than in any other time in all of human history. We've got Jesus is coming out of our ears, even in the United States and especially in California. I know we've got a handful of them here on this island. I know some people that think they are Jesus on this island. And they will tell you that they don't seem insane either. You know, they're not, uh, they're, they don't have a lifestyle that seems completely like they're off the rocker. They just will tell you up, straight up, if you ask them, yeah, I believe I'm Jesus. And I believe you're Jesus, and I believe he's Jesus, and I believe she's Jesus, and on it goes. And the world is full of false prophets, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But Jesus predicted it, and it's happening. And he says that he is going to perform these signs, the false Christ and false prophets, for what purpose? To deceive the unbelievers? Well, certainly that will be the case, but listen to what Jesus says. To deceive the elect. To deceive believers. People like us. Satan isn't done with us. He hasn't completely given up on us even though we belong to God. And so Jesus says, so be on your guard. Be watching. Be careful. I have told you everything ahead of time. And so as believers, even though we're looking at these end time predictions and these end time prophecies regarding Satan and, the, and the, uh, uh, the false prophet and the Antichrist, we need to be on guard now because that same spirit of Antichrist is existing and alive in the world today. And so we need to be so careful because there are miracles that are performed even by unbelievers. Now this particular false prophet is actually going to have the capacity to call fire down from heaven. Gee, that sounds familiar. Deja vu. How many times in the Word has God called fire down from heaven? There are at least a dozen, if not more times, that God has called fire down from heaven. Frequently in the Old Testament, He's called fire down from heaven to exact judgment on a rebellious and unrepentant world. He's called down fire on His own people when they were wandering in the desert, grumbling and complaining about this and that. Sodom and Gomorrah was consumed by the fire of God. But... We also have examples where fire is coming down from heaven to authenticate the ministry of God and to establish the reliability of his servants. One of those examples is Elijah in his contest with the prophets of Baal. Remember that story? On Mount Carmel, we got to visit that location when we went to Israel 
last year. Just phenomenal to be on that mountain. But on that mountain, this contest took place. There were 450 prophets of Baal, idol worship, ungodliness taking place. Jezebel was a part of that whole process. And Elijah stands before the people and he says, how long are you going to waver between two positions? Either God is God or Baal is God. Make up your mind. Serve God or serve Baal, but stop trying to be playing both fields. And so the people said, well, show us what you got. Essentially, that's what they were saying. And so Elijah said, okay, prophets of Baal, you make a sacrifice to Baal and you call down fire from heaven and if fire comes down from heaven and consumes that altar, then Baal is God. And then I'll try my hand at it. One man against 450 prophets. And life and death was at stake because whoever lost would be killed. So the prophets of Baal get out there and they, they're dumping around and dancing and you know after a while that doesn't work. They've got this sacrifice all set up and they start calling down and they start screaming and yelling and calling out and Baal didn't answer. So then they start doing the next step of trying to get the attention of God's cutting themselves and wounding themselves and bleeding. They spend a whole day doing this. And I have to say, Elijah's got a, a, a very sharp wit and sense of humor. He says, well, maybe he's busy. You know, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's not available. Maybe you didn't make an appointment with him. And so they got more angry and they started slashing themselves. And I think to myself, oh, how like that is the world when any other God forces us, requires us to reach to him and to try to call out to him and find him. And only God, only Jesus Christ is the only God, the only creator, the only sovereign king who comes down to us and finds us. He is unique. There is no other God. So these prophets are slashing themselves and finally they exhaust themselves and Baal, I mean, uh, Elijah comes up and he says, well, you know, let me have a turn. So he gets out there and he puts a sacrifice, sets up all these rocks for the altar, puts the sacrifice on it, and then they're just about, they're going to say, okay, he's going to put the match to the, to, the, to the wood. No, no, no. I want you to get some water and I want you to flood this place. Three times they brought water and just flooded the wood. They built a trench around it and filled it with water so the water would be soaking the wood, soaking the sacrifice because Elijah wanted to make it absolutely certain there was no mistaking who the real God was. Listen to his prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. See, the authenticating work of his ministry and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. How long did that take me to read? 30 seconds? The prophets of Baal were chanting and raving all day. And Elijah lifts up this simple, concise prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! And they were right. And there was a turning and a repenting. And the prophets of Baal were all slaughtered that day, 450 of them. And it was a great victory in the kingdom of God. But this false prophet is going to call down fire for his purposes, for demonic purposes. 
He's going to call that fire down to authenticate his power, his calling, and his ministry, so to speak. And so Satan will engineer these miracles for the purpose of deceiving the inhabitants of the earth. This word deceive means to lead astray or to seduce. And that's exactly what the false prophet will do. He will seduce and lead astray men and women, and I believe even those who are possibly very close to the kingdom of God and possibly even those who have received Jesus Christ and prayed the prayer, so to speak, during that tribulation period. Jesus said that he is determined to lead not just the unbelievers astray, but even the elect. This really should be a warning to us. And I want to encourage you. There are people in the world today, ministers, evangelists, so-called prophets, who have performed things that are hard to explain. And yet, the things that they teach are not godly. The things that they speak of are not found in Scripture. The patterns and the, the methodologies are not even... They're, they're unknown and unheard of in the Word of God. And it's so important that you, each of you, and for myself, that we become men and women who know the Word of God so that when something is taught that's not correct, we're immediately like, no, that's not what the Bible says. But if we don't know the Word of God, we can be tricked and deceived. Because as the Scripture says, the first to bring forward their information seems right until you hear the other side. But if you already know the other side, then right away it's like, no, that's not right, and here's why. And you go to the Scripture and you show that person why. Maybe you don't even know it that well, but you're able to say, well, I can't tell you right now, but I know that's not right, and I'm going to go study, and I'll come back and we'll speak of this again. And I'll show you from Scripture why this particular teaching is not correct. And so it's so important that as even within the body of Christ, there is a leaning more toward experiential walk with God. And nothing's wrong with that, but if it overrides the Word of God, then we're in deep trouble. And there's an abandonment of the clear, expository teaching of the Word of God in many churches today, and it's left the, the believers vulnerable. And so I encourage you to be men and women who know the Word of God, because even as Jesus says in the, the, in the last times, the Spirit says that some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, I want to take a moment and talk about what are some of the authenticating signs of, of, of a true prophet. Because we do have prophets, and it seems like on this island we've got all kinds of them. They're just everywhere. What is a true prophet? How do you identify a true prophet so that you don't get sucked in and so that you're not deceived? Well, there are three particular tests of a true prophet are found in Scripture. And these aren't in your notes. If you want to take some of this down, you can. The first is found in Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 through 22. And I'll just summarize the test. Does the prophecy come true? Does the prophecy come true? If it doesn't come true, the Bible says, ignore that person, I'm not talking to them. They haven't heard anything from me. And they're speaking on their own, and don't worry about them. Don't even fear them. Some of you might remember a few years ago, we had a, a, a gentleman named Jeff. Uh, and most of you are new to the church since that time, but we had this guy, Jeff, who seemed to be a brother. And he was able to talk about Jesus, and, and I even had some fellowship with him, and I, but I had some red flags. And then he started wanting to prophesy over different people in the church. And I was really, uh, I felt uncomfortable with that, and I talked to him about it. And, uh, and then later, the, the kicker was is that he believed that God called him and showed him that there was going to be a hurricane that was going to make Aniki look like child's play. And it was going to hit the island. And he set a date. 
for the hurricane to hit. And it was only a few months from the time that he made the prediction. And he and this woman that was his counterpart went all over the island producing these uh, reams of prophecies about God and distributing them to all the churches. And then he went on Hawiki and made his prophecies. And some of you may remember this. And then the, the killer was is that he went out to Poipu Beach where he predicted the hurricane was going to hit. And he held up his arms and he went out there to hold back by his power this hurricane. Well, I told him right up front, I said, you're a false prophet. And he says, how can you say that? I love God and I love the word. And if you heard me say, and we went on, I said, you're, you're a false prophet. And he said, why do you say that? And I said, because you've, you've prophesied a number of smaller prophecies in our church individually with people that haven't come to pass. And the test of a false prophet is Deuteronomy 18. You failed the test. The Bible says to ignore you. Now I remember having a discussion with him after the Aniki thing didn't hit. And then he set another date for it. And there was a brother, uh, and I won't mention who it was, but there was a brother standing with me after church when we were over at the SDA church. And there was a brother standing with me and the guy kept trying to get in with me. I don't know what he wanted, but he wanted to be my friend. He kept saying complimentary things to me and trying to endear himself to our ministry and to the ministry that God has through this church. And I just looked at him straight in the eye and said, You are a false prophet. You are speaking from the mouth of Satan. And I, there was another brother standing there with me and he was like, Whoa, you know, it's like... Because I don't go talking like that very often. But the Bible gave the test gave the, the standard for prophecy and I was able through that test to identify this gentleman as a false prophet and from that time on we ignored him and now the whole island ignores him and nobody even knows what happened to him because he wasn't a true prophet of God. Now another test of a prophet and interestingly and you might want to look this up on your own sometime Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 5 it says that even if their prophecy comes to pass they may not be a true prophet. So just because it happens doesn't mean, oh, well, they're a prophet. So it's possible that some prophets may be demonically inspired and actually get some of this stuff right. Or just by chance they might get some of it right. But Jesus says, or God says, that's not enough. If that person, having prophesied something to take place and it occurs, and that person, as a result, tries to draw people to worship other gods, that person is a false prophet. And not just ignore that person, but it says stone that person. Purge the earth of that sinfulness. Now, again, this is Old Testament. I don't know if we should go around stoning people. But the fact is, is that Jesus, God, is giving us the standard for prophecy. The first is if it doesn't come to pass, ignore them. If it does come to pass, but they're encouraging you to follow other gods, it, you know, don't just ignore them, but there, there's something that we need to do aggressively. And then the third thing is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 16. He says, examine their fruit. Examine their fruit. Jesus goes on and he says, a good tree can't bear bad fruit. And a bad tree can't bear good fruit. You will know them by their fruit. So the prophet and his prophecies are, can all be matched up against not only his words, but also his life. Do you see the love of Christ in him? Is there, a, is there just a passion for Jesus? Is the Holy Spirit really controlling their life? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in their life? Is there a humility? Is there a submission to authority? Are these things taking place in their life? And if not, then even though they may have prophesied, even though it may have come to pass, and even though it, it, they may not be trying to get us to worship false gods, if the fruit's not there, watch out. Be very careful. Now, there's a lot of this stuff going on in the church. And I'll, I'll talk again about that in just a minute. But 
so many people aren't prepared. So many Christians aren't prepared because they don't know the word well enough and they don't apply these principles. Let me tell you something. I have been in so many churches and so many Christian meetings and I've been in, in the presence of pastors who prophesy different things to happen. And they get all excited. And they start prophesying about revival and different things that are going to take place, even on this island. And they say, God is going to empty the bars and God is going to empty the prisons and there'll be no more crime. And they're, they're not just praying for that, they're prophesying these things are going to take place. I've been in the presence of people who have prophesied over people who had cancer and were prophesying that that person would not die. And they died. Confusing everyone. Terrible confusion. You know what I find interesting about these kind of prophecies and the reason why we as a church and as believers need to be so careful about what we say? Don't ever be shy if you have the gift of prophecy because I believe it's alive and active today. But on the other hand, don't use God to proclaim what you hope will happen and do it in a prophetic way. Do you know that in all of these cases that I've mentioned, I've never heard a retraction. I've never heard any pastor come and say, you know, brothers or family of God, I went public with a prediction about something happening this next year or the year after or God doing something great and it didn't happen. And the Bible says based on this that that was a false prophecy. And I repent of that and ask you to forgive me for trying to whip you up in a fleshly way to an excitement over these events that we're planning or this thing that we're going to put on. I've never heard that. Have you ever heard that? I've never heard it. I've never heard someone who prophesied over someone who was ill and said, you're going to live. God speaks. Thus saith the Lord. And the person dies. I've never heard that person be brought in front of the church and, and required to repent. But if that happens in this church, that's what will happen. If there's a false prophet in our midst and if somebody speaks in the name of God and it doesn't come to pass and it's something significant like that in public, well, that person, I hope I don't have to talk to you. I hope you voluntarily say, I missed it. I ask you to forgive me. I repent of it. I, mis I misunderstood and I misled and I misspoke the word of God. And unfortunately, because of these kinds of prophecies, so many people today ignore prophecy because it's just it's dust in the wind. You hear pastors, unfortunately, evangelists. You, you see it on TV, these guys prophesying these great things and it doesn't come to pass and it's, almost, it, it's just like listening to a fortune teller. And nobody ever goes back and finds out that the person only has a 25% batting average, so to speak. But in the church, when we're wrong, we need to stand up and say, I was wrong and I repent of it and I ask you to forgive me and next time I'm going to be a lot more careful and listen much more carefully to the voice of God and make sure that it's not my own flesh speaking. Okay, did I kind of get off on that? It's important because it's a... It's something that brings disrepute to the name of Jesus Christ. And it weakens the witness and testimony of the church. And it's something that we shouldn't be a part of in terms of, of uh, false prophecy. Now, this false prophet, having done these things and having called this fire down from heaven and, and uh, uh, getting the people of the, wor uh, of the world to worship him, he orders this setting up of this image to this beast. We're told that in verse 14 where he says, Beware, or I'm sorry, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth and ordered them to set up an image in the honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now this image, is a, is a, it's not just a copy, but it's a likeness. It's the embodiment of that person or that thing that is uh, in the image. 
And a good illustration of this is Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar and the image that was set up to him. Do you remember the story? King Nebuchadnezzar was just, he grew so famous and so powerful. And, and, you know, I bet you anything, it doesn't say this in scripture, but I bet you anything, he himself didn't call himself God. But some boot-kissing guys around him started worshipping and saying, You're God! You're the best! You're incredible! You're God! Why didn't you let... You know what? We need to set up an image for you. You are just far beyond any other king that's ever existed. And we want to... Well, worship, is that... Yeah, that's it. Worship. I think worship is an appropriate term for what we need to be doing for you. And the king says, Well, I wouldn't have thought of that myself. But as you speak, I think you're right. That's a good idea. And so off they go and they build this image that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, all solid gold. And we know from Scripture that at the behest of his servants, the horn was blown and harps were played and guitars were sounded and drums were being beaten. And at that point, everyone was required to fall down before this idol and worship. Who are they really worshiping? Thought, idol? No. They, the idol was the embodiment, the likeness. Who they were really worshiping was King Nebuchadnezzar. And so they worshiped a man. And we know the story. Daniel and his compatriots said, No. We won't. There's a Keith Green album. I don't even remember the name of it and I wasn't planning on sharing this so I, I might lose a few details but the cover of the album has two people standing just not arrogantly not proudly but just standing everyone else is worshipping an idol and these two are standing and other people who are down on their knees are kind of like this and just in shock because they know it means death but it's a demonstration that believers must stand against anything that's not of God that's anything that's, that's idolatry anything that's the worship of anyone else except the one true God. But this beast, the false prophet, will set up this idol in the likeness of the Antichrist and will require people to worship. Now, in verse 15, we're told that having done this, he was also given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Now, I have to tell you, I have a little problem with this particular text. The reason I have a problem with it is that everywhere else in Scripture where it talks about an idol, it says they have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't speak. And there is no breath in them. So I'm thinking to myself, how is it that every other passage in Scripture says that there is no breath in an idol, and yet this idol seems to have breath? How is that accomplished? Well, I have several possible explanations. (laughs) One is audio animatronics. The same thing that uh, made Jurassic Park and Star Wars incredible movies is that they made, they made lifeless mechanical things look alive. That's possible. Personally, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But it's possible. Another possibility is uh, illusion. Uh, you all know who David Copperfield is. You've seen him make elephants float in the air and seen uh, uh, when he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. And, and every one of us, when we saw it, was like, how did he do that? Illusion. That's a possibility. You know what I think it is? I think it's just demonic. I think it's just pure, demonic, satanic power that Satan, in some way, is able to make people think that this statue, this idol, 
has breath and is alive. But notice, he doesn't say that he gave him life. The word zoe, life. He doesn't say that. John makes sure that he doesn't write that because only God can give life. But the false prophet somehow is able to give breath in the sense that this false prophet, as we'll notice in just a minute, speaks so that he could speak and and cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. And so somehow this false prophet is able to give this idol something that no other idol in all of human history has had. The ability to communicate. I, I don't understand it and I would be foolish to try to explain it to you except to say that I think it's demonic. And I think Satan has the power to do some pretty powerful things but certainly we know his power is dwarfed by God's. However he does it, the false prophet will create an idol in the image of this Antichrist in the temple of God that will be so impressive, so awe-inspiring, so lifelike and convincing that he will claim godlike powers for himself as well as for the Antichrist and they will gladly not only receive but demand servitude and worship from the entire earth. And again, those that refuse will be killed very much as they were in Daniel's day. Now by God's grace, Daniel was delivered. And it turned Nebuchadnezzar's life around. It turned a nation around. But in the end times, there's no guarantee that God will intervene in that fashion. And even today, there are men and women who are suffering and being persecuted and are dying at this moment for their faith. Especially in the Muslim communities. And God is not intervening in a miraculous way. And they are being martyred and going to their death for the cause of Christ. And so, these folks who fail to receive the mark or to worship will be killed. Now, kind of his, the topping on the cake for this false prophet is found in verse 16. He also forced everyone, small, great, rich, poor, free, slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. Gee, that sounds familiar. God has been putting marks on his people for a long time. On their foreheads, on their hands in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 9, verses 3 through 4. What do we have the Jews doing? What does God say about his word? He says, bind it on your hands as a symbol. Put it on your foreheads as a reminder. The 144,000 Messianic Jews are given a, 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 a sign, a mark on their foreheads as belonging to God in Revelation 7. The overcoming believers in the, in the churches that were spoken to by Jesus Christ will receive a mark on their hands identifying them as belonging to Christ. Revelation 20 and 22 tells us that those who have overcome, who are faithful to the end, will have this mark and will be having the name of Jesus not his Jesus name. We don't know what the name is going to be. It's a name that no one knows. And it's going to be written on us. And it's going to identify us as belonging to him. That's going to be incredible. I, I tell you, I wouldn't want very many marks on my body. You know, I've, see, I've seen guys that have, you know, love Sarah, and then they marry, you know, Mary Jane, you know, and it's like, bummer. You know, that's not good. That doesn't work out well. But if Jesus wants to write his name on me, bring it on. I want it now. And he's already given us the mark of the Spirit. But what does Satan do? He attempts to counterfeit again the work of God by identifying the believers, his followers, his lackeys, his bond slaves and bond servants with a mark either on their forehead, on their hand. But his mark comes with some strings attached. Like everything with Satan. He never gives anything good without yanking you around the world and back. Anything that he wants to give you 
has got so many strings attached it'll make you miserable and sick. But what he holds out in front of you is, wow, that's great. I want that. But unbeknownst to us, he's got all of these filament lines going to that thing that we want so badly. And once we bite, he just starts reeling us in. He sets that hook in our jaw and we're history. And so he rewards those who are willing to bow down and worship with the ability to buy and sell. And we're told that in uh, verse 17. Is that if you didn't have this, no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So you know how Jesus wins you? Through the loving kindness of his son. I'll share something with you that came up in our prayer meeting on Friday. And I, I, if you haven't come, you've, I just highly encourage you to come. They're, just, they're not like prayer meetings that I've ever been to before where you just kind of are doing time and trying to do what you're supposed to do. I mean, they're powerful. It's a wonderful thing to pray before God. But in our prayer meeting this last Friday, God led us to talk about evangelism. And in the context of evangelism, talked about the importance of love as the primary tool for winning people to Christ. And I want to ask you just a couple of questions. What motivates you? If you're doing sound or the worship team up here or I'm teaching or you're serving in Sunday school and so many of you are serving, I'm just so grateful. I look at all of this and I'm just amazed and, and I'm inspired by your servanthood. But what's motivating it? Is it love? Are you motivated by love for God and overflow? Are you motivated by that ministry that you're doing to love those people with God's love? Is that what's driving you? If it's not, the Bible says it's like a clanging gong. Make some noise, but not really very useful from God's perspective. Satan draws by power. He forces obeisance and worship. God invites and opens the door and says, if you're tired and you're weary and you want to come home, my arms are open wide. Big difference. As I prayed about that, I had to repent and I spent most of that evening repenting before God because even though I'm doing most of my life, it revolves around ministry and around God and ministry and helping people know the Lord, I had to confess, you know, I got convicted all of a sudden. I realized I'm not doing this out of just deep agape love for God and deep agape love for the body of Christ. And I had to confess it and repent. It's not going to be persuasive words that wins this island for Jesus. It will be the love of Jesus Christ communicated. Jesus himself said that his command is that we love each other and by this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I encourage you, re-examine your own heart as I did on Friday and see if maybe there isn't some work that the Holy Spirit needs to do in renewing that love for Him and the love for others so that whatever you do is for His glory and motivated by the benefit that you want to bring to others as you share Christ with them. Now, I'm going to have to kind of hurry along here. This buying and selling is important and there's been a lot of speculation about this mark. 
Uh, one of the real transitions in our culture economically were credit cards. Credit cards were, you, I was kind of, I was probably not really in that credit card phase when they came in, but some of you may remember, it was like, uh, people were very skeptical. It was like, you know, a little piece of plastic, it didn't feel like, it's not the same as having a roll of bills in your pocket. But now for us who are so accustomed to it, you can't even operate in life without a credit card. You have to have one, even to write checks or, you know, to do a number of things, you need a credit card. And now we're very accustomed to it. What's the next step? Well, the next step are our implants. Microchip implants. And if you think this is, you know, sci-fi stuff, it's not. They're already using implants in animals. They do it on Oahu with dogs and cats and other animals to identify them and to keep track of them. Well, they are already field testing this on people. They've already, they're already doing it. There, there's a, a gentleman in England who is a biologist who's had an implant in his, in his forearm for two years. And it's a little, it's only about a tenth of an inch wide and less than an inch long and it's in a, encased in a glass tube. And this guy runs his whole life from this implant. He, all his house is hooked up to this implant. He can, anywhere he goes, he uses this implant and he just scans it. Boom, 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 boom. Everything is done for him. Do you know that how helpful that will be? Do you know how attractive that will be? There's so many applications for this. Finding lost people, finding uh, lost property, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, not having any cash. I, I had, even though I have a credit card, I had somebody two years ago use my credit card number. I don't know how they got it, but they got my number and they went and bought a car at a local dealership over here in Kapaa. <laughs> and it took me a year to get that thing straightened out. But with an implant, he could have never done that. It's already being used. It's a very powerful technology and people at that time are going to be excited about it. Now, is the implant the mark? I don't believe so. I'll tell you why. Because I think when the mark comes, we will know that it requires the worship of the beast. It's not going to be a kind of thing where you, like, you take the implant, gee, this is, you know, or like a credit card, gee, if I take the credit card, maybe that's the whole beginning of the beast thing. And, and maybe it is, but that is not the mark of the beast to have a credit card. I don't believe that the implant will be the mark of the beast. I think when the mark of the beast comes, we're gonna, it's going to come at a time where he's already in existence and demanding worship. He will have already created these miraculous signs and then he's going to say, if you want to live, if you want to get on board with everybody else and you don't want to die, you must receive the mark. And by the way, if you receive the mark, you'll also be able to buy and sell. And at that point, there will be a mark. But I do believe these implants that are coming are going to be a precursor in preparing people's hearts and minds for the mark of the beast. And so that time is coming. But again, it's nothing that I believe that the believers need to be afraid of. Why? Because we'll be gone already. Now, he ends by saying that all of these things call for wisdom. And he says, calculate the number of the beast for it is man's number. Now, I have to tell you, I, I have to claim ignorance on this particular passage. I don't know why God would say calculate the number and then, you know... So many hundreds of thousands of people have come up with all kinds of different people who fit the number of this beast. Just to give you a, a clue you in a little bit, Roman and Greek letters have numerical equivalents. And so you can take a, a name that's written in alphabet and convert it into numbers and then convert that number into a whole number and it might turn out to be 285 or 562 and some end up being 666. Now, there have been so many claims to a knowledge of this number that it's just ridiculous. I mean, everybody, anybody that somebody didn't like or looked like a bad person historically got 
the, the, the number 666 attached to them. I had an email recently where somebody told me that they worked out all the numbers and everything and, and, and they're sending this. I didn't know the person. They sent it everywhere. It was one of these huge, gargantuan emails. Send it on, send it on, the Christian community. You know who the, the uh, Antichrist is? Bill Gates. Bill Gates is the Antichrist, if you work out his numbers. And so uh, my encouragement to us is that though the Bible says to calculate the number of the beast, and I don't think there's anything wrong with pursuing some things like this, but I think that the next thing that the church needs to be looking for is not the beast because what we need to be looking for is the great next prophetic event in human history. And you know what it is? The rapture of the church. That is the very next event that's going to take place. And we need to be ready. There is a great punishment awaiting this earth. There is a great wrath that is going to be poured out as we have studied and will continue to study in the book of Revelation. But the Bible says that God is confident in better things for us because he has not appointed us to wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your appointment. That is the most important appointment of your entire life is a right relationship with God and then being assured that at that moment that Jesus Christ comes again that you are caught up with him. And what a day that is going to be it's going to happen like that and everything will be over. All our problems, everything that are consuming our hearts and minds and lives and finances. And I encourage you, if you are wise, you will recognize that now and live for that moment rather than for this moment. God loves you. He's got an incredible plan and he's working it out even now. Is the Antichrist alive? Is the false prophet alive? I don't know. Very possibly. What I do know is that time is short. And he's looking for men and women who will live completely for him. I want to be that man. And I want you to be that kind of a woman and that kind of a man and that kind of a young person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and we give you glory and honor and praise. And God, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to count the time carefully and to live with all the energy that you give us for your glory and for your praise and to be on guard against the counterfeits that will come our way. But God, all we need to do is stick close to you and you will protect us. Thank you for each person today. Help us to love each other deeply from the heart and to love the unbelievers in our lives into the kingdom of God for your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.